to Sanchiro's Boys. This is your co-host, Tim Amatuli. And I'm Chris Cote. And today we're talking about Akira Kurosawa's Stray Dog from 1949, one of his most revered pre-Rashomon films. Yes, straight copaganda. That's what we're talking about today. <laughs> this movie is nothing but cops are good, but morally complicated, but good. Don't get it twisted. But yeah, this was a pretty long film. It was over two hours, which I was really mad about when <laughs> I had to sit down to watch it. Yeah, well, because you didn't realize it. Yeah, I didn't know. I just, I don't, I don't look until I have to, which is a bad move when it's 7.30 p.m. <laughs> Terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. And it's also a very dense film. Lack goes on. I was almost blown away with how much, not even like plot content, just like visual content <laughs> is in this film. Oh, yeah. The, this movie really takes you all over the place. It's based on Akira Kurosawa's own unpublished novel, Stray Dog. Oh. Which was inspired by some real world event about something similar to this happening. But then he immediately adapted it. That's a very different screenplay tactic than Akira Kurosawa has used before. He writes scripts very, very quickly. And he wrote the novel in like six weeks or something like that. And he thought it would only take him a few days to adapt it. And it took him like two months. <laughs> took him longer to adapt the novel than it did to write it. It's also an extremely bold move to write a novel, not publish it, and then make that novel into a movie. <laughs> that also explains why this movie was so long and dense. Because he felt like he had to be faithful to the novel. Even though it was his novel that no one's ever read. <laughs> Because I was like, wow, this movie's really packing stuff in there that it doesn't need to. <laughs> but when I heard that it was based on a novel that he wrote, I was like, oh, it all makes sense now. That's why this movie was like this. Not bad, but like this. And when I was doing the research, like, I was, like, misreading that where I'm like, what do you mean his novel? Like, like we obviously know that Akira Kurosawa adapts a lot of different films from literature. No, though, this was just one that he wrote, never got released, and then just turned it into a movie. Instead. I'm like, why not just write it as a script? Nope. That's not, not how he works. The story was too important to him. I don't argue with Kurosawa's results. And you know what's interesting is he actually isn't too crazy about this one. Really? Where he feels like it was like too technical. He felt like he didn't say as much as he wanted to. Like, essentially, he had stuff that he wrote in the novel that he felt like didn't translate. And that's a very weird position to be in. I was unfaithful to my own novel. You know, because people always say, like, oh, the movie wasn't faithful to the book or whatever. But it's, like, weird for him to create both and be like, yeah, I kind of didn't do it all. I guess the book is better than the movie, and it always will be, even when you write the book. <laughs> yeah, that's tough. I can... Those criticisms seem to ring true. But uh, why don't we tell him what it's about? In an unusually hot summer, rookie police detective Murakami is robbed of his pistol on a crowded bus. After failing to chase down the thief, he becomes hyper-focused on reacquiring his firearm, blaming himself for any harm caused by its seven bullets. Murakami infiltrates a gun-selling ring and makes his way through various suspects with the help of older Detective Sato. After Sato is shot, Murakami finally closes in on the criminal named Yusa. Despite being shot in the arm, the detective manages to handcuff Yusa and reminisce on the experience with Sato as they both recover in the hospital. Yeah, so uh, the film is very uh, dense, but the plot honestly isn't? <laughs> yeah, it, that that is absolutely true. I was like overwhelmed with the amount of information, and at the end I was like... I guess not a lot happened, huh? <laughs> like, one hour in, I was like, wow, we've been to, like, 30 places and whatever, and we're, like, a third of the way into the story. In general, the thing about this film is that it feels a lot more, like, visually ambitious than anything else he's done. Like, the story is, you know, give or take, but he's doing so much in terms of, like, camera moving, the camera focusing on little details, the camera tracking his feet as he walks through a crowd, these shots that have, like, a thousand people in them. <laughs> All sorts of crazy visual things that, like, just way more dense with that kind of material than any of his other films. Yeah, absolutely. We've been watching this filmmaker develop, and now he's gotten so much more experience. He was back working at Toho Studios after strikes and everything, 
because the quiet duel he had to make at Daie rather than Toho. Yeah, and the quiet duel is much more pared down. He's like, now it's a big brain time, <laughs> full studio. We're gonna. He says that this is the single smoothest shoot that he ever had in his entire career. Oh, thank God! Because if it wasn't, it could have been the worst shoot of all time. Maybe for all the actors, it was the worst shoot they ever did. But for Kurosawa, he said that aside from the one incident with the dog, that there was like no problems on set, really, like outside of, you know, having trouble with weather. Originally, this film was going to be more of an exploration of like the four different main areas of Tokyo, but then a bunch of typhoons happening and stuff made that impossible. So we really focused on like the really poor areas. It was almost like ethnographic in the detail of the poor view. Kurosawa says that the joy and it had good time that they felt making this like shows through on the screen and that's why it just feels like a technically well-crafted film. Yeah, certainly. I think, yeah, the most professional feeling one that he's created so far. Yeah, I agree. No, that's definitely part of it. Like the fact that he can do just shot after shot after shot after shot after shot of this city work where he's clearly like in a real place, not in a studio, and you see Mifune walking through crowds. They said that sometimes they were shooting in a studio and they would replace the setting and change it like six times in one day. They were moving at like lightning for some of these montages and things. I believe that too, but some of it definitely had to be in person. Also, they had a scene at a baseball stadium. I was like, did they just go to a baseball game? That's like a crazy amount of production value. That That is like unrivaled. I mean, maybe close with like the most beautiful with the, you know, the group of women, but a whole baseball game. It was nuts. There was, you know, not 50,000 probably like they said, but there was thousands and thousands of people in this scene. That's the kind of image that we really haven't been afforded to see before. Major, major gatherings of people that are like able to actually do stuff now that we're a few more years out of the war. Some semblance of life is like trying to rebuild itself, but things are remaining stagnant. People are just trying to have enjoyment a bunch of people even in this sweltering heat going to a baseball game, you know? It is very much like a tour de force showcase of a, just how much could happen, how much they could do, how much they could see. Oh, that's my overwhelming impression of this film, basically, is that they were doing a lot, even though it's this kind of tight story about these two cops finding this one gun and this one killer. He really puts a lot into it, just in scale. Especially compared to, you know, the previous one, The Quiet Duel, which is like the most toned down film ever. <laughs> this is quite the opposite. Even the ending when they have this, you know, insane chase to almost the death of exhaustion, which I like feel like I knew it was coming based on his other films, like Drunken Angel is kind of like the way the ending goes, like, oh, he's building up to something. Mm -hmm. There's got to be someone just insane confrontation to end this movie. And there was, and it was great. They were in the woods in a flower field, and they were just covered in like mud and shit. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is a, an insane ending to this film. For the story, let's start at the very beginning. As we've established, this takes place during a massive Japanese heat wave. This is maybe the sweatiest movie I've ever seen. Yeah, there's it's famously hard to show heat on camera, so the only way to do it is to make every character in every scene all the time sweating profusely and just, like, complaining about how goddamn hot it is. It was just every time they go anywhere, everyone's like, oh my god, this heat, I can't do anything, I can't think. It was wild. I love when a movie can make you feel hot or cold. It's definitely not my 80-degree room. You know, like, in Do the Right Thing or something, where Spike Lee was always using, like, the heat bar in front of the camera to, like, you know, show the heat distortion and stuff. Here, he doesn't do anything like that, but there's, like, this constant waving of fans, and everyone is mm -hmm. always sweat. You thought Sanshiro Sugata was gonna be the Kurosawa sweat fest? Absolutely not. No. It is the, this is, like, the, the film print itself seems to be drenched. If he makes a sweatier film than this, I will eat my hat. There, it was <laughs> absurd. The sweat was a character in the movie. Essentially. And we're able to establish this heat right off the bat with the credits, which are over a stray dog da -da. panting in the heat. 
it seems like every Kurosawa movie that he mentions in his autobiography has some funny story associated with it. So when he was doing this one, he said an American woman from the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals falsely accused him of injecting that opening dog with rabies. Excuse me? <laughs> she claimed that, like, the way the dog was panting and everything, like, th- that they had given this dog rabies. And he's like, I don't know how... He's like, everyone who knows me lo- knows I love dogs. I would never do that. Yeah, it was just hot out. <laughs> he's like, yeah, have you never seen a dog? It's not cruelty like, for it to be hot out. <laughs> he said that the ordeal put him through so much that he was like, there needs to be a society for the prevention of cruelty to humans because that's what this woman is putting <laughs> us through. I'm like, what a burn. That's that's really good. Just Hell like yeah. his character is, he's burning up. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a lovely anecdote from this story. And yeah, it does start with the dog and then the first words are like, it was hot out. <laughs> well, first of all, that was like the highest quality, closest footage of a dog I've ever seen in my life to this day. <laughs> and it was so much of it. I was like, I didn't know back in the day you could get that close to a dog with a camera. Yeah, they said they had a guy that was like running it around. He was like on a bicycle taking this thing out for runs so it would get really like panty. A weird little bit of narration in the very beginning that doesn't come back except later on in the film when uh, Murakami himself narrates. So it's two different narration voices. Yeah, well, that's just like his thoughts, right? Or is there a second narration? The second narration is his thoughts, but the first narrator isn't Murakami. It's just an anonymous narrator. He's talked a lot about the fact that he felt the original opening like wasn't really working and he said the way that it was in the novel he was able to establish stuff that he didn't in the film and everything so he's like experiencing these weird kind of problems like that but i do think that the opening they give us really thrusts us into the situation immediately and wastes no time we are intercutting kind of a lot through time in that present day when that happens we're seeing like the sign that we're at the police station so we know that the lieutenant just says you lost your gun or something like that and then we have immediately have like a flashback to him at the shooting range where he misfires into a stump. Then we're back to that and he's saying like, oh yeah, I, I lost it on the bus. And then he shows us him on the bus and then the chase. The editing was wild, yeah. It was like three scenes. It was like Soderbergh film. That was a strong opening. Like so much happens before we even get into the plot that happens before the plot. <laughs> I think that that kind of opening style actually like does well to put us in Murakami's mindset when he gets robbed, where it's just this sudden like rush of holy crap, what just happened? What do I do? Oh my god! When he is on that bus, that that is where you start to feel the sweat immediately. You like, I I've I've been on buses like that. NJ Transit, baby. It is tough <laughs> this is a, that is a tough place to be it's, and to, to be pickpocketed and not be able to move and all this and to lose something you know this is really stray dog is a big exploration of post-war japan and the crime that arises out of it pistols are really hard to come by as so he really can't lose that that was a major plot point i was like if this film took place in america in 2020 they'd be like oh you lost your gun here's a rifle we don't here's a tank who cares <laughs> This gun was so precious and so rare, which is why, I mean, that that was, like, kind of hard to get, you know, 70 years through time. Yeah, I mean, I think you gotta, you know, put yourself in the mindset of being Japanese in 1949. Yeah, I do that every day. What Kurosawa really ascribes to is, like, this gun is this character's identity. Without it, he, like, kind of to himself loses his status or his occupation. E- even though everyone else is kind of saying, like... Yeah, you know, it was bad that you lost this. You were irresponsible. We're going to dock some of your pay. But, like, they're not treating it nearly as big of a deal as he is. And that's because on the surface, it just seems like he wants to get his gun back. But 
he's really grappling with a lot more personally. Yeah, they do develop it. But at first I was like, dude, why do you care so much? I know you're Mr. Too Damn Honorable because you always are, but like, it's fine. In Donald Ritchie's book, he goes into a lot of detail about how he is the classic Kurosawa hero, where he is the one guy who has like got a goal that he's dead set on and he has a good heart, is determined, even though everyone else is telling him, stop worrying about this or don't do it. It's impossible. If they hadn't found the picture of the first woman, none of this plot could have ever even happened. He becomes a stray dog himself where he becomes laser focused on his own objective and he sees it as having a altruistic purpose. But truthfully, you know, this is another one of those films where, you know, it's an examination of the cop and robber mentality and how opposites aren't really all that different all the time. Another, you know, interesting point to note is, uh, this is one of the first body cop movies ever. I was surprised, actually, by how modern this film felt. It was like a police procedural, one that you could see in the 80s or 90s. And not the last one we'll see from Kurosawa, either. He will have other ones. I mean, I was a little bit tired in the beginning when it was, once again, who are the actors in this film? Toshiro Mufune and Takashi Shimura. Well, if you're, if you're tired of them by now, boy, are you, you got a lot in store for you later. I, I was just like, can't he do something else? But I actually I ended up liking their dynamic a lot in this one. It also helps that Takashi Shimura doesn't show up until, like, halfway through the film. Yeah. Or at least halfway through the first hour. He shows up late in the film. I kept waiting. I was like, where is he? Is he that guy? No. Like, someone else. One thing that goes on in this film a lot is um montages. Oh, <laughs> He is the montage yeah. king in this film. It is a Soviet-era montage used in the Soviet sense. As in, just, like, everything is so dense and crazy and you know one scene where he's looking for someone to sell him his gun is like the most insane montage i've seen in my life it's 10 minutes yeah it is a 10 minute montage it is too long the movie is too long truthfully if this movie was half an hour shorter it would be i think probably the best kurosawa pre-rashomon movie it's got a lot in it it just takes a little too long getting to a lot of things Mm -hmm. by the end of that montage you expect summer to be over i was like how much time is passing like is this dude getting paid to do this there was a moment about seven minutes into that montage where i was like is this just what the movie is is this gonna be the next hour and a half (laughs) it's just him doing this i was like that's that'd be a pretty modernist thing for kurosawa to do but it was going on so long because i don't know anything about the movies going to them i was like maybe this is just a movie about being lost in the city and trying to get your fucking gun (laughs) and nothing else happens yeah, it was truly nuts. There's a few others, too. That 10-minute montage isn't even the first montage. The first one is him tailing the woman that helped Yusa steal his gun. The funniest chasing of all time. The chasing what you walk up to the person and then can't do anything, so you just have to keep following. I kind of find it funny how all of the other policemen are, like, well acquainted with some of these criminals. Absurd, like, friends. Just like, oh, hey, what's up? How you been? They keep pointing out that Murakami is a green officer, a green detective. He, he doesn't have a lot of experience. For a lot of the movie, he's not a very good police officer. No, he's not. They make a point of it. They're like, hey, you're kind of bad at this. And the movie shows you he's very bad at this. All of his instincts are bad. The really only thing he has going for him is that he won't quit no matter what. And I guess that's, you know, his character thing. Which is, for Kurosawa, one of the most important character aspects. He starts chasing down this woman. That's another, like, eternal montage. But it's kind of funny to have her try to, like, outrun him by getting on the trolley. And he, like, runs Mm -hmm. to the trolley. And, like, you keep in mind everything. It's, like, 110 degrees every day. And he's, like, the whole movie, he is just, like, sprinting everywhere. Yeah, sprinting, sweating. I hope it wasn't actually this hot when they filmed it. You know, like, I'm hoping that this is just movie magic. Because, like, if they were making Mufune do this, and he's not dying of heat stroke, everyone's wearing a suit. I'm like, bro, like, everybody, please, wear less layers. It's so 
hot. You're making me hot watching this in a cold room on a couch. <laughs> like, Yeah, that's why when Yusa, when he first gets money for the first time in his life, he sheds his winter coat and buys a nice white linen suit. Literally the coolest fabric you could buy. Yeah, wearing a winter coat in this time. It's like, well, yeah, that'll expose you, definitely, if you want to stand out. So after that first montage, we soon find ourselves in the second montage where he is trying to get someone from the gun racket to find him by posing as a out-of-work, down-on-his-luck soldier, which he actually was, we find out later on in the film, before he became a police officer, he was a soldier that watched good men turn evil and struggled with everything when he came home because he was left with nothing after a robbery and made the decision to not try and exact revenge on the world and try and be virtuous instead. We find ourselves at that little restaurant area where he uh, has to ration off his rice card for the gun, which is like, thinking about it in context, that is a crazy commitment that you'd have to make in post-war. As soon as she asks for one, he arrests her, and we find out later that the guy with his gun was going there to return it, and then ran off. It is very possible you see Yusa in that scene as they run out of the room. I do love that, though, as the first example of Murakami's personal feelings getting in the way of his job and honestly screwing things up, even though by the end of this, he does wind up taking more guns off the street, but like that was never his goal. That was kind of just like an accidental thing. It's also pretty clear, I think, that in that scene, he thinks that the gun that she's giving him is probably his, which I think is why he's like so like freaking out and like immediately grabs her and runs. He opens it and he's like, do you also have a cult? <laughs> <laughs> like he it looks like upset she's like a what <laughs> oh uh, cool it's like this but different <laughs> one thing i really love about this film and it's something that we've seen kurosawa use prior is i love the way that he uses the bullets as like, a ticking clock to bring us through the film i do feel that it adds some suspense to the film even though i do feel that it lacks a whole lot of suspense overall like in the actual execution but I think, at least in theory, using the seven bullets as the chronological time ticker is, you know, just like in One Wonderful Sunday where they use the yen and as that's slowly depleting over the day, here we're having more and more bullets be fired off and we know we're getting closer and closer to the climax and the conclusion. It's a very good way to pace the film. Especially in a film like so dense and complicated to have, okay, we're at seven bullets, oh, we're at six, five. Very little happens. They spend a lot of time just not near the criminal. We know that this criminal probably doesn't have any relationship to Murakami. We just know that it's chance that this specific guy gets Murakami's gun. It could have been anybody, and if it had been given to a different person, we would have a totally different movie. We're not chasing this dude for a personal vendetta. Well, I guess technically they are, but not towards Yusa himself. Yeah, yeah. I do like how they're cross-checking bullets at crime scenes from when someone gets shot in the arm, and later on when a housewife gets murdered, the scratches on the bullets are matching yeah that was cool that was a very propaganda stuff where i was like a lot of this i doubt is actually yeah well uh, and, and everyone else doubts it too because like why would it be the same gun you know like what are the odds how there must be more guns out there we know there are other guns out there because there's a whole gun racket and it sounds really irrational it must be mine he's just putting himself into every situation but when when we dig he is correct like it's his intuition that that's right happens to get right every time you know, there's that quick little moment in the beginning that you totally forget about where he shoots the stump because he's so tired during target practice. And that's when he, we find out afterwards that he goes on the bus and then loses his gun and stuff. And so he goes and, like, digs out that bullet from the tree stump. I was like, that's a great way of just confirming this guy's theory that I felt like was a really, really great example of plant and payoff. 
yeah, all that forensic stuff felt very CSI or whatever, like the matching the bullet casing to the other casing, the things from the gun. And this is way before any of it. Even the lesser known Kurosawa are still like really influential to a lot of things. There's even a Star Wars The Clone Wars episode that's a remake of Stray Dog, but with a lightsaber <laughs> instead of a gun. <laughs> that's awesome. No surprise. I was watching that episode and I was like, I think this is Stray Dog. And I looked it up and it said, yeah, this, this episode was inspired by Stray Dog. I'm like, yeah, that's classic. <laughs> classic Lucas. They took a page out of George Lucas's book. Just make your movie one of Kurosawa's films. He was correct. The whole story could be broken down into a 20 minute episode. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> they eventually find this girl and they know this girl is like important to the case. It's Yusa's, not girlfriend, but. It's his fling. Yeah, it seems more like Yusa's is obsessed with her, and she's like, okay, hey, like... Yeah, Yusa's is simping for this girl. Yeah, definitely. They find her, but then she's kind of useless, so they go back to his house. And that was a scene where I was like, this is lovely, but this movie's too long. Because <laughs> I like the montages, but when they were just sitting there like, yeah, I guess we haven't found him yet. And he's like, yeah, <laughs> okay, <laughs> we know. <laughs> so there was some good dialogue about, like, Murakami struggling with his own personal feelings about the case, and Sato being like... Yeah, fuck it. They're all criminals. Don't worry about it. So they find the girl and they go back and then another murder happens and they're extremely upset about it. And Murakami's playing himself and then they go back to the Bluebird Club and then they find the girl at her house. And then there's like this crazy scene where Sato goes off to find him and goes to like eight different locations and keeps getting like a hint that takes him to the next location and a hint that takes him to the next location. All while the girl back at home is like having her own personal conundrum. And that was all very good. But a lot of that felt like the stuff that would be influential on police procedurals. But also stuff that just makes this movie hard to grasp in my head. Because just like so much happens. It really can't be undersold how much there is and how similar a lot of it is. Yeah. But the thing that's important that's going on in a lot of it is the off-screen characterization of Yusa that keeps getting more pieces put together where we start to understand this guy more. He lives with his sister. He like built a ramshackle little thing onto his sister's house to sleep in. And he kills a cat. Yeah, he's living in, you know, absolute crap conditions. And he's left this note about how he stepped on a little kitten, which followed him home or something because its life was useless. And he felt like his own was the same way. And yeah, that was nuts. That was like some Zodiac shit. It was really sad. And they like had the sound effects of the rain and the cat sound like while they were reading it. I'm like, oh, my God, this is like breaking my heart. Another thing to talk about in the book is dogs chase cats and cats chase robbers but they're calling the criminal the dog but the criminal views himself as the cat and police officer doesn't really realize that he himself is also the dog who's just become laser focused on his own personal thing and not trying to see a bigger picture in anything i think that a lot of the you know we're not so different you and i kind of things they're not like spoon fed to mm -hmm. you the way that a lot of other movies are i think you gotta like kind of dig for these kind of details more but I, re I like that they're there i think it does a great job with that probably the most pivotal conversation in the entire movie is sato and murakami are on the trolley and sato says you know this guy is a mad dog and you know what mad dogs do they like follow straight paths which is you know like they get tunnel vision and that is exactly what murakami's doing he is laser focused on just getting his gun yeah and it's true that Yusa's also doing that, but they both are. Especially more so Murakami. But they never say, you know, oh, Murakami, now you're the stray dog. By the end, he's literally chasing him in a field of shit and a straight path. Which is exactly what they would do if they made it today. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I'm glad they didn't, because, like, you can tell. Maybe we're all stray dogs. Yeah, that's, that's, what they would, that's what they would do. And you know what? By the end of the film, when they've both rolled around in all that mud and everything, they're both in, like, the same clothes, you, like can't really easily tell the difference between them and that is exactly the point yes <laughs> i thought the ending scene was right 
second to last penultimate scene was incredible. <laughs> and yeah, absolutely. They are both basically identical in their complete shit coverness. He literally is just chasing this guy relentlessly, even gets shot and just keeps walking. And that is truly the mad dog following the straight path. Yeah, exactly. It's like, who looks more unhinged in this moment? Yusa is feeling so helpless. He just knows he's at the end of the line. Toshiro Mifune just looks animalistic. Absolutely. Yusa throws his gun at him when he runs out of bullets. And I think it's really big character beat that Murakami stops and picks up the gun and then chases him instead of just following him. That tells you right there, his number one priority is the gun. His number two priority is Yusa. And it should be the other way around, but it isn't. Yeah, but it's no, it's absolutely been that way. He was zero chance in hell going to leave that gun sitting in that swamp. Yusa's fatal mistake, if he had thrown the gun into that bog, he would have gotten away. Yeah, right. <laughs> if he threw that gun off a cliff, Murakami was diving off. I think also this like whole ending scene is another example of Murakami not being a very good cop and fucking up a lot, but also his relentless drive is what saves the day. Because he like hears that he's going to be in this location, runs there, doesn't have his own gun, doesn't know what the person looks like, doesn't take the girl with him. He like so easily could have fucked it up in every possible way. Yeah, well, if Yusa just shot him in the head, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? Thank God Yusa missed twice and he knew how many... I thought the number of bullets was going to be more important there. I'm real glad that no one ever like bought ammo. They never, like, address the idea that you could reload this gun. Oh, no. (laughs) Which I guess, you know, like, the guy's poor and everything. He probably can't get more ammo, but, like, they're really hedging on there being an exact number of bullets in that gun. In the scene where Sato's like, do you have a gun? And Murakami's like, yeah, do you want (laughs) I was like, wait, he has a gun. Yeah, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, that is, like, a plot hole. Like, where did... I I was, like, I just assumed that he got another gun. I thought Sato would have a gun, but I guess they had to do that, so... Yeah, why didn't Sato have a fault? gun? The, the old detective who knows what he's doing the, who he's the beat. G- doesn't give a shit. He was gonna talk to you, so when he found <laughs> I love Sato. He, like, so checked out, but also an extremely good cop. <laughs> Giving the girl a cigarette, getting all the information he wants out of her. Yeah, and Sato brings uh, Murakami to his house at one point. We find out, like, he's, like, a loving father with three children. Yeah, well, He also describes, like, how they could live on 6,000 yen a month, and this guy has, like, 40 and 50,000. And, and, like, the next scene, some guy dies, and, like, he, or no, not some, the, his wife gets shot, and he was like, why would they do this over a measly 50,000 yen? Because, <laughs> like, the rich guy's family gets shot. Yeah, it was a good little class thing by Kurosawa there. I did love, though, like, that guy's anecdote. Like, we only see him for that one scene when he's like, you know, I, I left my home a while ago and planted these tomatoes, and they were green, and I come home, and now they're red, and my wife is dead. yeah. I thought there was going to be a blood thing, and there was a blood thing when the tomato's in the ground. Yeah, we don't see her blood, but we do see him, like, spike the largest tomato I've ever seen onto the pavement. And it freaks Murakami out, too. Even if the film doesn't come together, <laughs> exactly, it's the stuff like that and the fact that there's a thousand things like that, that was really what, like, impressed me with this movie. Just a thousand good little scenes. Yeah, I would definitely say that this film, there's a lot to mine once you're done with it, but you don't notice all of it in the moment. Yeah. There's a lot more to think about. I had seen this movie before, and I felt like maybe because I was rewatching it, I wasn't as in suspense because I knew where it was going, which is not the movie's fault, obviously. That is my own perception of it, so I'm trying to pull myself out from that as much as I can. But th- again, there is so much happening. I also love the character beats with Harumi. Yeah, she was cool. She's a dancer, and all the dancers are laying on the floor just like absolutely wiped with heat exhaustion. When they say that the people looking for him, like, they all shoot up at the same time. And it's a really nice reaction shot. 
later, you know, she pulls out this really nice dress that there's no way that they could afford, and we find out that's because Yusa bought it for her and everything with the stolen money that he killed people for, and creates, like, this quick ethical dilemma for her. This precedes the craziest scene in his filmography to this point. It starts thundering when it's on Sato, and it cuts back to Harumi, and then she is spinning and being like, this is like a dream, and it's thundering, and like, you're like a <laughs> Murakami, and his eyes are like wide, and I was like, yeah, mine freaking too. out. It's, I was it, like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. She was like a witch. <laughs> it was so good. I was like, this is the most like pagan shit I've ever seen in my life. I love this. And then it like calms down. It, I thought things were going to go down in that scene, and really not much happens. Her mom just freaks out of here. But it is like an emotional low point. It goes down for them. It doesn't go down for Murakami. Murakami is just adequately spooked. I was adequately spooked. Oh, God. <laughs> You know, the heat really ends as soon as we're ready to finally meet Yusa and find him. This is when Sato is finally tracking him down, and now we're contrasting the heat with the rain pouring down, and it is really intense rain, as we often see in Kurosawa. But I really love the way that they use it here, where Sato is on the phone and someone lets it slip that there's a cop in the building. I know, that was so frustrating, but it was really good. It was the wife of the owner of the hotel, yeah. We only see Yusa's legs as he comes down. We see the white legs. There's a, lo a lot of shots of that. Uh, like some of these other films, we're seeing a lot of shots of just people walking, like, you know, feet and legs around. A lot of leg. We don't even really see Sato get shot. We wind up cutting back to him half in the door, half out, just like the top half of his body being drenched after he's been shot and Yusa's run away. And it is such a low point. And it totally causes Murakami to snap. Oh, yeah. He freaks out. And one of the better <laughs> screen freakouts... I think, when he just, like, is screaming Sato's name. It's like, Sato-san, please don't die. And they literally take him away, and you can hear him, like, the hallway echoing down the stairwell. And, yeah, because that's been this guy's, you know, modus operandi. He takes personal responsibility because of his own negligence for every amount of death and harm that comes from this gun. Now the man that he's been working with has been shot by it. He totally breaks down, and I love it. Yeah, by his own gun. It's, like, deeply cutting. I love the limited space, too, with, like, that one pillar right by the door, and it totally separates him from all the other cops. Beautiful, beautiful shots. That's so brutal. It makes sense that he completely snaps. Poetic cinema, baby. And then later, he gets shot with his own gun, and it's not as bad as you think. In fact, it doesn't really bother him at all. <laughs> yeah, he, he's got the adrenaline pumping. He, he doesn't have time to be shot. Sato's like, thank God I'm shot so I could not work. I was low-key hoping he would die to his own gun. <laughs> I was like, that would be the most insane ending <laughs> for this film. But no, it's still uh, a major studio film. Yeah, we, we have the final battle, which is another circular Kurosawa movie beginning and ending with the chase. The setting for that final fight is weird with, like, the swamp and everything. There's, like, that one girl playing Mozart on the piano. That didn't make any sense. Who stops when she hears the gunshot and then, like, goes back to playing, which I found funny. Yeah, I guess it's fine. <laughs> Maybe it symbolizes how little this actually matters. Like the Sugata standoffs, you know, they're all just kind of staring at each other. Kurosawa cares about this tension building between the people before the actual fight breaks out. After he brings him down and he's handcuffed, he's like looking at like this flower, which is another or another thing that reminded me of Sugata. And then these children yeah, yeah, the walk flower. by, which also reminds me of no, Sugata. Yep, yep, yeah, yeah, I noticed that too, yeah. Watching this guy look at a beautiful flower and listen to children happy and singing and realizing, like, he's about to get thrown in jail for everything he's done and he's never going to hear it again. He, like a little kid, starts crying and breaking down and is... He, like, screams bloody murder. <laughs> like, blood curdling. It was kind of upsetting. 
Another thing, the scene before when he's in the waiting room for the station looking for Yusa is like an excellent scene where you actually hear his thoughts, which is unusual, I think, for Kurosawa. He likes to do these little things. Yeah, it's, uh, again, weird. We haven't had any narration from him before, and now we suddenly do, but I, I, I do like that. That felt like another, you know, touch from the novel where it feels like he really wanted that to happen. And, you know, like, he could have done that with another montage of, you know, suit jackets and pants, but it was nice to have it be different. Yeah, the thing that you have to translate the best you can. That was a really good scene, though. Like, everyone here is 28 and wearing a white linen suit. Oh, but wait, uh, the mud. <laughs> and then only this one guy has mud that was done almost perfectly. Having him and eventually having Murakami covered in mud, it's like an exact inverse of Drunken Angel, where they were in black suits getting covered in white paint, and now they're in white suits getting covered in mud. Very good. Like, there are so many things about this film that I liked. It's a shame I didn't like the whole film as much as I liked all these little things. Yeah, I I agree. I mostly feel the same way, but, you know, I, I do think the film has a lot of merit. I do think it's definitely one of his strongest early works. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the the, the two of them lying on the ground together looking very similar. You know, you, you gotta remember, like, that their backstories that we learn about them throughout are also very similar, where they're both yeah, war veterans coming back, and they were both robbed, and he took a life of crime, and Murakami thought about taking a life of crime, but opted to get an actual job instead. It's weird to now see how both of those paths have actually led them to the exact same spot, even though they're in different positions. I, I find a lot of the stuff about that very interesting. And, you know, part of me likes that Yusa has no connection to Murakami, but part of me also doesn't because I feel like you can suss out like people's motives and things. It's just not that type of detective film where like we're putting together clues. We're following a trail, you know, like a dog. Well done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was another thing about that, actually. Uh, earlier in the film, when Murakami's at Sato's house, they're talking, and Murakami's like, yeah, someone stole my knapsack too, and I could have committed a robbery just like Yusa did. And then Sato's like, well, the difference is, you're one of the good ones. And then Murakami kind of sits there, and he's like, yeah, I don't know, I guess. <laughs> like, he does not seem convinced. Sato's saying, like, you understand him too well. Essentially ascribes humanity to him too much, because he's like, I have been like that too, like... You gotta try not to do that because a lot of people could get hurt. People do get hurt because of Murakami's actions. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people. A lot, and like a lot of things could have been worse. In the end, things work out, but by putting yourself in this position, you're opening up a lot of liability. He is constantly putting people in danger. In fact, it's almost a brave moment when the girl doesn't come with him. And he's like, I want to put you in danger too. And the final takeaway from the film is Sato and him are sitting there. They're looking out the window. The dialogue here is deeply weird. It kind of made me laugh. But it's like, look out there. It's a beautiful world out there. It's full of scum who are doing crimes. There's <laughs> crimes happening right now. Don't even worry about Yusa. Your arm will get better, and then you'll see so much fucking crime that you'll forget all about this emotional journey you had. And I was like, is that really the takeaway from this film? That criminals are criminals. It's not just the situation they're in. Don't think about it. There's a tough life ahead of you as a cop. I didn't take that as, like, the coda for the entire film. I think that that is a logical place for Sato as a character to be, but we're meant to identify with Murakami and understand that he is the hero of the story. We don't think that Murakami actually feels that way, but we're, like, kind of understanding the culture that he's in and that it could change him in the years to come. Yeah, I just, like, <laughs> that was a strange message to end the film on. Yeah, I was like, well, that's a point. I was like, oh, and that's that. Normally, I would assume Kurosawa would take the position that Murakami does earlier, that there are no bad people, there are just bad situations. That's like, seems to be more his instinct. I think that he does, but you know, like, when bad people do bad things, there are consequences. I know, I don't know. 
The film takes a very ambiguous position. He's empathetic to how this guy got into prison, but ultimately he has killed people and he has to pay a price. Yeah. I thought it was interestingly ambiguous on this topic, which I think is maybe something that Kurosawa was talking about when he's like, I couldn't really mail the themes the way I wanted to from the novel. It might be clear in the novel. He's self-described not a very political filmmaker. He doesn't really want to tackle the complexities of the legal system. It just seems like a not very Kurosawa thing to say, yeah, bad people are bad. It's nice, too, that this is a film with so many poor people where, like, he doesn't vilify them all. When Murakami is, like, living among the poor for a while, like, essentially being homeless and getting paid for it, I guess? I yeah, don't really know. Yeah, putting on poor face. They don't make it like this is a really scary environment or anything. It's just, like, a sad kind of reality for people, and he relates to it. Ultimately, that's not where he actually is. Yeah, that's just the only thing I was like, that theme felt indelicate. <laughs> Yeah, but and remember also, this is still at the height of Yakuza power post-war. Drunken Angel was all about how bad the Yakuza are and that he, he really doesn't empathize with those people. And Yusa isn't quite like that, but he's still in a similar vein of people that take advantage of everyone suffering to make people suffer more. Anyway, I think we'll leave that unresolved like the film. But yeah, so should we talk about our favorite shots? I liked a lot of shots in this film, but one of the ones that I thought was pretty notable was the shot that I chose during the sort of interrogation of the first woman that was with him on the bus. There's a lot more than just the frame that I'm showing, where it's actually a long take that's moved around and we're always keeping everyone in frame. And what I like is how we're seeing action and reaction at the same time. These people, you know, waving their fans, sitting around, and they're being pretty casual about everything they're talking about, but the whole time we're seeing Murakami wide-eyed and holding back his anger that this woman is directly connected to, like, the worst experience in his life. We're able to see how everything that they're saying reacts to them, and it creates this nice triangle. There's a whole Every Frame of Painting episode about Kurosawa's uses of shapes, and he likes to use triangles, and this is a triangle that he's going to break by standing up and everything like that. It's all a lot of nice stuff. And I felt like that was a very dynamic, very modern camera move that I really appreciated in this film. we got to find a better word for that, the modern, because he is inventing it as he goes. There was a lot of really good stuff like that, just like long, complicated, well done, well executed shots. And yours? My shot is not like that. It's very simple. <laughs> um, my shot is when they're on the rooftop because Sato just says, I want to go to the coldest place I can, which is presumably this breezy rooftop in the police area. And they're talking and Murakami is once again having a moral crisis about the fact that his gun is being used to kill people. Yeah, he do be doing that. Yep, he do he be doing that basically the entire film. And Sato is once again saying like, it's fine. <laughs> like, it's not your fault. <laughs> but then he says this one thing that he says, I think two more times in the movie, where he says, I just think something bad is going to happen again. I think this is the first time he says it. And I guess at this point, we don't really know, because I think this is only one where is committed. It's like still before the path the film will follow gets developed. The shot is, instead of seeing over the side of the railing and the ground, which you see for the entire rest of the scene, it's just Toshiro Mufune, perfectly framed in the center of this against clouds, and you see no horizon line, which is very unusual. It's very rare to not have a horizon line in a shot, or like any kind of sense of where the background is. So it's just literally his like body against these dark clouds, and I thought that was like a really good way to show... One, premonition, but also, like, the destabilization of what's going on. He, like, feels very unsteady. He thinks something bad will happen. It's very foreboding, and there's no horizon line to ground you in this shot. This is the thing that you see in certain, like, late Monet paintings, where he doesn't give you a horizon line. It's just, like, a pond, and you can't see anywhere else around it. It's, it's a very cool technique to kind of create this feeling. 
Yeah, it's really nice. It's one of those things where it's like, wow, that just works so perfectly. Like they have this storm cloud behind him that they can use and externalize his internal feelings, which Kurosawa does so well all the time. But enough about our favorite shots. Let's talk about our favorite person. Let's get to the real metric of this film. <laughs> the hottest man on campus, <laughs> Toshiro Mifune. The Toshiro Mifune hotness scale. And um, he's looked better. I'll say that. I actually disagree. Oh, he's I think so this sweaty. Is the best. He's looked so far. It's hot. <laughs> no. He does not look very good as the homeless Cuban revolutionary for that entire scene. But for most of this movie, he is in a suit. He's a man in uniform, but not in, like, the ugly uniform from the last movie. I thought this is actually the best he looked. Maybe he's getting a little older. But in the other movies, he just looked kind of weird. I think he is really coming into his own in this movie. Maybe it's the haircut. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I will give my highest rating so far. For me, this is a 9, which is lower than your ratings, but higher than all my previous ratings. Yeah, mine is going to be a 9.1, which is just slightly higher than I gave him for Drunken Angel. Because in Drunken Angel, he also looked <laughs> like that, where he was sweaty the whole time. But he was also, like, looked sick. Drunken Angel, he has leprosy. <laughs> like, here he just looks anxious, which it, it just makes him more relatable to me. Yeah, I think it's hot. I don't think it's hot at all. I, I, he, I imagine that he probably smells. But, eh, who am Teach I kidding? It's Toshiro Mifune, he's perfect. And I guess we'll talk about uh, our final thoughts on the film. <laughs> Uh, overall, I think it's definitely his most ambitious film so far, which Drunken Angel was like, oh, wow, it's his most ambitious film so far. And this just like, you know, blows that out of the water with scale and scope. And... Yeah, and it's soon enough it'll be blown out of the water again. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's how he does it. He keeps stopping himself. But it's not perfect. I do agree that's too long for different reasons. And at the end, you're like, wow, I guess that all comes together, but not quite as well as I think it could. I don't think he's really refined his craft, even though he's gotten really good at doing lots of good stuff. So for me, this was a four out of five. Or a 8 out of 10. It's very good, but it's not perfect. I am right there with you. That is exactly how I feel about the film, too. I think there is so much good here. I just think that as a whole, it doesn't hold itself up as a watch as well as I was hoping it would. I think that it's way more interesting to analyze than to watch. Yes, that's true. And maybe that is, like, it is more of a novel tendency where, like, there's all this subtext or actual text that is really, really good stuff, but unfortunately, like, just parts of the film are too slow and, and, and kind of, like, I feel like lacks suspense in what should be a very suspenseful movie. There are definitely scenes of suspense, but I don't feel like it sustains it the whole time. After 10 minutes of montage, like, I'm not really feeling anything anymore. I'm kind of just ready to get where I know that this is going. Interrogation after an interrogation after an interrogation. And they're not, like, intense interrogations, you know? They're just kind of talks. Yeah, they're almost always pretty casual. It just doesn't always feel like there's too much building, even though, in theory, having the gun constantly going off does create suspense. You just don't always feel it. But I do think that there's a lot of great stuff in here. I think his most ambitious film to date, I agree, and it's still, even with problems, one of the best we've seen. And yeah, I'll also give it an 8 out of 10. And yeah, so that does it for Stray Dog. And then we'll be back next week with the American television show, Scandal. <laughs> yeah, I have never seen Scandal, which is one I'm, I'm very excited to see. I don't really know anything about it. I have never heard anyone talk about it. Me neither. I like that name, though, for Kurosawa, and that's exciting. What could be scandalous in his movies? He's talked about sex one time in, 10, in 11 films. I'm hearing scandalous and Toshiro Mifune. I'm there. Aw, hell yeah. <laughs> and I hope that all of our listeners will be there too. We'll talk to you next time for Scandal. Scandal.